Part 2 feels like a public relations tutorial. The PR How Not To in Arizona, the Coyotes ask, no trade clause captain and cornerstone defenseman Oliver Ekman Larson for a list of teams to be traded to, but he isn't quite down to waive it. They also find a way to have more draft-related controversy in 2020 than any other NHL team, even though they didn't have a draft pick till the fourth round. How was that even possible? The new PR how-to in Chicago. GM Stan Bowman makes trades that lead to a media availability unseen in the Hawks' history. And what about his plan to spend the lowest amount on goaltending like in the salary cap era ever? And the PR, how to oversell a wholesale change in Nashville. GM Poyle sells the local media on his departures and additions, but we're not buying the propaganda he is selling and we will tell you why. All the Central Division teams will look a lot different next season, and Central Division Hockey, the podcast, is going to get you up to speed on the rosters with team-by-team in-depth analysis, including grading all the GM's performances thus far, coaches' grades from last season, and a Central Division power ranking to close out the last part of this full podcast. Who got better? Who got worse? One thing's for sure, even in the flat cap reality, everyone was making moves. We are of it all like a Savardian spin around. I hear the train coming, it's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison Time keeps dragging on But the train keeps on rolling On down to San Antonio Welcome to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bigelow. This podcast clocked in so long, I decided to make it three parts. I'm putting start times for each of the teams in the podcast liner notes. And of course, you all know the pause button may come in handy if you don't have a solid block of time to listen to it start to finish, even with it in three parts now. This is part two. It looks at the Arizona Coyotes the Chicago Blackhawks, and the Nashville Predators. If you took my reluctant recommendation for a drinking game for the podcast in part one, be aware this part of the podcast will afford many cheers. Although, thank the GMs, especially GM Poyle for that, not me. Quick shout out for the intro extra music for the show, Wholesome Prison Blues, by Jason Kirkness from his album, a Beautiful Disaster. You can find that track and more of its great music on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream 
your favorite music from. As I mentioned in part one, this podcast is to look at each of the teams in the Central Division after the initial free agency frenzy and the moves made post-October 9th till the recording of this podcast. Free agency is an ongoing process. There isn't a deadline to complete signings, well, except for the start of next season and this year, the beginning of training camps and the regular season start are all still being discussed. They remain in the discussion phase. It makes for a unique offseason, much like the draft held online this year was a first. The free agency period opening when traditionally teams would have already been playing meaningful regular season games was also a bit unusual. Thus, for the draft, we were able to have a complete picture, and you can check out the 2020 Central Division Hockey Recap Podcast for that. This podcast for free agency, I would like to say, we can assess the team's early moves, but we should be aware more may be made before the teams make it to training camp. Therefore, I'm grading GMs on what they have done so far but absolutely plan to revisit this come the official start of training camp. Firstly, this is a first look after several weeks of free agency opening. I recorded it in parts beginning Friday, October 23rd. I put add-ins or updates as I went along while completing it fully. There is still a good possibility when we arrive at training camp that there are some additional moves, whether additional free agent signings or trades, that will have been made. There are also a few restricted free agents that have not re-upped yet with their teams, although many have. Still, I wanted to grade the GMs on their moves so far. Then, of course, when training camps open, to do an updated grade on any moves that follow after this podcast that could improve or lower a GM's grade. I've also decided to give final coaching grades for last season for all the coaches, too. Therefore, the rosters are a work in progress. However, most GMs, while looking at other potential trades, have said they have made the moves they plan to make, and they expressed their lineups could very well be at training camp like they currently are. Trade rumors, however, are still out in the media, and some key restricted free agents that require new contracts and deals are not yet finalized. That there will be more happening before training camp opened. Hard to say how significant that would be, almost dependent on which of the teams, but we do have a lot to look at based on the moves and signings made. Meet the One for All card. Perfect for Aunt Edith, your dog walker, and even what's-his-name. With over 100 great brands and no fees, it's the one gift for all. Available in stores and at giftcards.com. Some people celebrate the holidays, but you, you dominate the holidays. You deck the halls, the mantle, and anything else that will stand still. You deserve a bold cold brew that's as festive as you. Topped with creamy cookie butter cold foam, covered in cookie butter crumbles, and perfectly pairable with our new cookie butter donut, Dunkin's Cookie Butter Cold Brew is a delicious match for your decked out domination. America runs on Dunkin'. Present participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can. 
with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now, get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com slash holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com slash holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com slash holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com slash holiday. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. Us Bar. full season out from Arizona officially joining the Central Division as they were in the return to play playoffs, the expanded playoffs, and were about to hire a new GM. It felt like a good time at that point to bring them into the fold a bit earlier. So by this time next year, come expansion draft time, NHL draft time, and free agency, we will know this team better. Former Blues assistant GM Bill Armstrong took over the GM job with the Oats, and it was very clear he wants to build the type of team assembled in St. Louis that were Stanley Cup champions in 2019. Now, the first question I was determined to ask was exactly what GM Armstrong was inheriting in Arizona. It doesn't strike me as a poor man version of the St. Louis Blues. In fact, that led me to really look at the design of this team by the former GM, a team that knocked out Nashville in the play-in series and then was lit up by Colorado in the next round. So we could say, not a lottery team, nor a true playoff cup contender, accurately, somewhere among the playoff bubble teams. I think there has to be two schools of thought, well, actually three schools. Those that like the team built by the former GM, John Chaika. I feel as though you aren't with how he departed the desert 
at least in Arizona, even supposed to say his name these days. If I admit, you can imagine this first school is the unpopular one. The second school, people who didn't like the team he built and are happy GM Bill Armstrong has arrived like a new sheriff in town. The third school, I find, is where the majority who never watched Arizona at all fall. They couldn't care what was built, good or bad, nor what changes occur now, like a forgotten franchise so far removed from relevance and misinterpretation and disinterest from the rest of the league. If Vegas is a hot spot, Arizona is a nice, warm place to play in next to obscurity like a perfect pre-retirement. That third category is where the majority of hockey followers pretty much are. And quite honestly, up until the realization of the divisional realignment being so close where we're at now, I can't say I paid any attention to Arizona, but did catch a few partial games this past year when they were playing other Central Division teams, and it was only games still finishing up after watching, you know, a pair of Central Division teams go head-to-head. Until the return to play, I wasn't sure I had watched Arizona play a full game. At the return to play, of course, that's when I started doing that. That, I believe, would be the majority of fans and media outside of the Arizona market. And, well, they're diehard fans. And I knew the team had some exceptional players playing in hockey's least paid attention to market compared to playing well next to about anywhere. By the time I had the foundation of what Chica had built, I realized Armstrong's team building is quite different. In Armstrong's Arizona, the Coyotes will transform into a St. Louis Dallas-like team in its composition. It currently isn't built at all like it. In fact, it's quite removed from it. The idea that Arizona is onto a rebuild makes complete sense. It feels like the franchise framework doesn't work for the new direction. This team was at the cap. It's according to cap friendly over, but what is getting moved is still to be determined. I one can't have a full-on love-in for what Chica left behind. The prospect pool is thin, yet the if almost everyone was healthy roster last year was capable of knocking off Nashville. There are players to like on this team. There is a structure in the way they played to the team's strength. There is talent. Early on, though, I think the things I like about this team aren't the same ones the new GM does, and that's okay. I just need to think more like Armstrong and less like myself, and there are some pieces that would look good on other teams if they're being moved out. Now, understand the premise that players will be traded or, as contracts expire, not be re-signed with this roster. The essential argument is the rebuild will make this team bad before it gets good. However, the limits to those changes, they may in fact not be as bad as originally feared for Arizona fans. I had said 
this team could look like an early 2000 expansion team by the time they arrived in the Central Division a season from now in the free agency preview podcast. That wasn't intended to be a hot take. It was a real possibility. And you know I'm going to stand by the assessment, but the fire sale has been delayed. First, a rant on Auntie Ranta. As I usually do start with the goaltending, and I have again in this podcast with all the teams, I have made it clear that I am a believer in Auntie Ranta as a solid backup, and even when he was backing up Hendrik Lundqvist in New York, I felt he had the potential to be an NHL starter. Ranta has one year left, and he split duty this past season with Darcy Kemper. They make relatively the same, a bit over $4 million per each. Kemper pretty much ended Nashville's season outplaying UC Soros. That duel is why this team was anywhere close to making the playoffs or, in fact, stealing around in them like they did. Without them, they aren't, but it's a split-duty system. Now, goalie Aiden Hill was re-signed and could play as a backup, but I'm not saying he can play split-duty. I could be wrong, but I don't see it. Here's the exceptional split-duty numbers of Kemper and Ranta as a pair from last year's regular season. Kemper had a 2.22 goals against average, a .928 save percentage, was 16-11-2 in 29 games played with two shutouts, allowing 65 goals against. His partner Ranta, a 2.63 goals against average, a .921 save percentage, 15-14-3 in 33 games played, with two shutouts and 80 goals against. Sure, if Arizona wants to part with one of these guys, they certainly can. But don't expect the goaltending a strength of this team to be as good as it currently is. Here's the first important thing. Ranta hasn't been traded, nor Kemper, and that is great for Arizona fans. If at some point one of them is, that will affect this team's ability to compete especially in a condensed schedule. If I had to cut payroll, and like I said in the preview podcast, I wouldn't be trading either of these guys to accomplish it. I am expecting one will be traded, and the likely candidate is Ranta. I don't have a suggested landing spot, but a team looking to improve, upgrade its goalie duel, Ranta is absolutely worth consideration. He's a guy who can play split duty to be sure. At this point, this is the first not making a trade move that actually keeps Arizona more competitive, keeping the goaltending Chica had in place. Next to the defense, and some grand larceny. While I was busy looking at the 332 plus aged defensemen on this roster to cut some costs as they were right up against the cap, Two things happened. One, I realized there weren't guys from the minors ready to fill a vacant defenseman spot. Any veteran departure on defense would create. Secondly, the guy I wouldn't move, Captain Oliver Ekman Larson, 29, was asked to submit a trade list, even though he had a no trade clause. 
Here is GM Armstrong on the failed Oliver Ekman Larson trade. Well, I, I think so. I, I think so. I think it, it could be put to, re- to to bed. You know, that deadline was set by, you know, the agent and the player. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's something we can move on from and, uh, you know, get back to work and, and, uh, and, and looking forward to this team, you know, getting together and, and getting the leadership group together and doing little things like that. But yes, it is time to move on from that. ODL did submit two teams. I'm not laughing at him. I'm trying not to laugh at how that isn't a list, nor did the two teams really have any way to make a trade work. Boston and Vancouver being those teams. Then OEL put a time limit on how long the team had and his agent informed the club of the quick deadline and it passed without him being traded. Again, for the current competitiveness of Arizona, this is a good thing. It is as if the core players on the roster are the ones keeping this group together in spite of the GM. For all the talk of how important it was to have an elite player like OEL want to sign long-term in Arizona, and likewise adding cup winner Phil Kessel was to having this team be relevant, the way this went down from the team is sad. Do understand, I believe if the strength of the split goalie tandem and OEL are what I consider core pieces, and the GM and ownership in Arizona don't agree, well... I don't see anyone as being untouchable, and trading OEL is a good way to be instantly less competitive. And when I listen to that clip, I don't hear OEL isn't being traded. I hear a GM who was prevented from doing the thing he is intent on doing. Arizona fans could hope if a trade of another defenseman is worked out, hopefully like I did in the preview podcast, with the guys with one year left, all the 32-plus-year-olds, Goligoski, 35, Demers, 32, or Yalmerson, 33. And if they move, Arizona gets a defenseman back in the trade. They really don't have a prospect pool to insert, save for right-hand defenseman Ilya Labushkin, who was re-signed. Him being an everyday player isn't my idea of staying competitive. Goligoski and Yalmerson are $5 million per guys. Oddly, Demers is the one I would move on from, but that would mean the team could still have a good top four, and Demers and his $3.8 million is the lowest cost of the pretty expensive D group currently. Also, 5'6 guy, value-priced left-hand defenseman Jordan Osterley, 28, doesn't fit the type of player I would believe the new GM wants. I would keep him. He was one of the best in the playoffs for Arizona. Of course, I also thought OEL was untouchable. Now, I think that could be only said of 22-year-old Jacob Chikrin. The defense is the logical place to cut salary. However, it is still good and deep for who would play of the top six right now, only because, like the goaltending, 
the GM hasn't traded away any of the players yet or bought any of them out. So as I say this, the strength of the steam, the goaltending, and the defense is all still there. The future is Chikrin. The other guys are all older. However, Osterley is a hidden gem at a really good salary, and even him moving wouldn't help the team's competitiveness. Again, the 30-plus guys are the logical first assets to move, although I don't like a complete overhaul of this defense. I simply get it's logical if you're going to reduce salary. Not logical, trading your best defenseman who was happy and signed long-term. That's the building block to build around. The reality is, OEL will continue to be asked to waive his no-trade clause, probably until he finally agrees. Hollow reasons, and yes, that's a play on Taylor Hall's name. Taylor Hall said he wanted to play for a winner to soften the blow of not wanting to re-up in Arizona. Yet, he didn't sign with a cup contender. Not even a team that has recently been to the playoffs. He got a one-year deal for $8 million. I think the contenders were all closer to a $5 million deal for him. Although Nashville might have tried to do more, but he signed with Buffalo. Chicago keeping $1 million of Brandon Sads in the trade with Colorado, says Colorado probably came in at that $5 million figure, given that Hall never really was impactful in Arizona. The win is not throwing money away by keeping him. Money, the team actually cap space-wise, doesn't have. I didn't want Arizona to re-sign Hall. And again, the player was the biggest factor in that not happening. Nothing to do with contending teams, just he really wanted out and thankfully did. Hall may find success playing with Eichel and Reinhardt. I hope Sam Reinhardt plays in the Central Division in his career. Truthfully, Arizona doesn't have that Eichel type of center, nor Reinhardt a center playing wing. And if that's what's required for Hall to be the team's best player, playing with other best players, and he wasn't in the postseason even one of Arizona's best players, then he, to me, is overvalued, especially on that new contract. Great players are supposed to make the players around them better, not require other great players to be good. Oddly, I think GM Armstrong would have been all right keeping him. The ownership we know made attempts to. The player, not the team, helped in the best thing happening for both. Follow reasoning using the contender card than going for a team that was worse last year in the standings. But thankfully, we don't have to play any more Hall and Yotes on Central Division Hockey, the podcast. The Grabner bio. I hated this. He was second in playoff goal scoring, and he played fourth-line minutes and killed penalties. Still surprised he still hasn't found a new team as I'm recording this. Although this Arizona team 
hasn't quite been blown up to date. Well, I really did take this buyout as the first sign that it was going to be. Let's talk about the forwards with the top six beginning at center. I'm putting Derek Stephan there. On the wings, right wing, Clayton Keller, who was hands down the best yield forward in this postseason. And center left winger, Christian Dvorak on left wing. I had liked the idea of Dvorak at second center, but I watched Connor Garland continually play last year in the bottom six. Dvorak at center means either Nick Schmaltz at left wing or Garland playing up the lineup. Schmaltz, then I would put at second line center. Dvorak's ice time, by the way, mirrors Stefan and Keller's the most. That's why he seems like a good fit. However, Dvorak's face-off percentage is better than Schmaltz. I like Schmaltz. He was injured for this postseason. And to me, he is a top six guy, especially with the makeup of this current roster. On right wing, on the second line, I have vet Phil Kessel. And on left wing, Lawson Krauss. Krauss solely based on time on ice from last year. He played more than Garland in the regular season, but not the playoffs. You could switch the two. Garland led the team in goals with 22, and really Kraut seems capped as a third liner. But with Hull gone, someone has to play left wing where he was because there wasn't a top six forward addition to this team. Gone also is unsigned, unrestricted free agent, center left winger Carl Soderberg. The 34-year-old remains unsigned this offseason and is probably one of the few remaining centers that would be of value in a bottom six spot for a team. He played around 16 minutes average time on ice in the regular season and postseason. That's someone to me who is still able to contribute. Arizona signed. Unrestricted free agent, Johan Larson, 28, a center left winger. So I put him at third line. Again, maybe the GM wants him in the top six. Again, left wing is either Garland or Kraus, maybe potentially Larson. And on right wing is Tyler Pitlick, unrestricted free agent, also 28, who arrived from Philadelphia. Pitlick is two years older than Vinny Hinestroza, and he wasn't re-signed and signed with Florida as an unrestricted free agent. The pit lick for Hinestroza through free agency seems to balance out that pit lick would replace Hinestroza in the lineup. That would allow re-signed right winger Christian Fisher to play on the fourth line because I think pit lick being the veteran is the guy that gets the third-line minutes. And based on Pitlick's average time on ice, he would slot ahead of the younger Fisher. What that does for Fisher's development, that I'm not entirely sure. Now, I thought Brad Richardson, more so than Soderberg, would potentially return to play fourth-line center. What I said in the Free Agency Arizona Preview podcast on Richardson. Brad Richardson, 35, would be more cost-effective and also an unrestricted free agent to play fourth line. That's the guy 
I think, is going to be able to be re-signed by Arizona. He also seems the prototype guy Armstrong wants in his bottom six. Brad Richardson signed with Nashville. Good pickup by the Predators, and more on him later when we talk about Nashville. Instead, slot in center John Hayden, 25, picked up as an unrestricted free agent from New Jersey. I would feel in the limited minutes, that's the spot for him rather than continuing to overwhelm the developing Barrett Hayton, 20. Let him play top minutes in the minors and call him up when there are injuries only. Here's GM Bill Armstrong on the unrestricted free agent signings of John Hayden and Tyler Pitlick. Well, we, we wanted to get a little, I guess, uh, a little bit more pop on the th- on the third or fourth lines, and um, I think we accomplished that today. Um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, John Hayden's pretty um, pretty physical guy. Um, he can he can actually back it up too. At the same time, you know, I've got a history with this player of watching him all the way back from um, when he was at the uh, the U.S. National Program. So. Um, I like the way he plays. Um, he's a hard-nosed player. He's got some size. He's got some bang. And like I said, he can back it up and drop the gloves too. And I think our team needs to know that they got a little bit of protection out there. So that was uh, important. And I think um, also with uh, Tyler Pitlick, um, another guy that can operate on the third or fourth line. And uh, he's got a little bang and a little pop and, and can add in some secondary offense. So it was a good day. As GM Bill Armstrong made known at his introduction GM press conference on the type of team he wants, the additions are to make a grittier bottom six forward group, and that will come at the expense of more skilled players like Hinnestroza and specialists like Grabner. Now, I haven't talked about guys being point per game at the AHL and how I finally generally hold down regular roster spots at the NHL when they have that kind of production in this podcast yet, I don't believe. Although, forgive me, this is a long podcast. If I have, I'm bringing it up as a correlation of those minor league point production stats and the ability for a guy to stick with an NHL team to me are a reliable benchmark that I've just begun to look at players' AHL point per game numbers to really see if a prospect will stick. I find the guys who put up those point-per-game totals are often the ones that do. The guys under that total generally don't. And the reason I'm sharing this is I would have slotted left-wing prospect Braden Burke, 23, for the fourth line, potentially third line even, for this upcoming season for the Coyotes. His American Hockey League stats from last season were 51 games played and 52 points for Tucson, 21 of those goals. I don't think it's happening as GM Armstrong signed Dryden Hunt 24 as an unrestricted free agent from Florida. He had 21 games played at the NHL level with four assists. In 35 games with Springfield in the AHL, he had 29 points. So, not quite that point-per-game production, but near to it. For a team that will have to continually find scoring throughout the lineup, I feel Burke deserves a shot to play, but I'm not convinced until there are injuries he actually will. I think he is the lone bright spot in an otherwise shallow prospect group for this team. 
the list of remaining unsigned, unrestricted free agents by Arizona were all minor league players. Only Burke, not even the younger Hayton numbers, make me think the prospects are close to everyday NHLers. Burke is the one prospect in Arizona I'm most watching, even if it's with Tucson still. And if I was, say, another GM, say Joe Sackick, I'd be getting Burke thrown into a trade deal. If I'm Arizona, that's an off-limits prospect from being part of a deal. It's a workable Arizona lineup, and they would be, to me, just below a bubble playoff team, given if the following statements are still true come opening night. The team has its goalie tandem of Kemper and Ranta. The defense core is still there. Or if traded, a serviceable defenseman comes back via trade. Or, for example, say Goligoski's or Demers was moved, but Arizona went and picked up Slater Cuckoo, who is still an available unsigned left-handed defenseman that can play at the NHL level. That he remains unsigned still surprises me. The goaltending and the defense are the team's strength, and they are pieces still in place to stay competitive for as long as that statement holds. They're still not going to score much, but defensively, they are still strong, so it actually isn't a requirement. However, the high-octane team some nights will light them up, like Colorado did, and the contenders like Dallas will score more while not allowing much against either. But those lower and other bubble teams will still have a test to collect points on the crew Chica built. Grading new GM Bill Armstrong a C minus, and doubt any moves would improve that grade. Trust me, had he pulled off the deals he wanted, there was more likely a chance I'd have lowered the grade based on the return. The replacement bottom six guys are passable, but it's not improvements. Grabner, for example, makes the penalty kill better. He's gone. Center Carl Soderberg is gone as well, and center Brad Richardson. So the center position is not as strong as last year. Not that Hall really worked in the Arizona top six, but there is no top six replacement. The vet Phil Kessel would be better sheltered on a third line, but really the second line is a third line with two fourth lines, and when injuries hit the forward group and defense, this organization doesn't have NHL-experienced guys to fill in. The lineup is passable with everyone never getting hurt. It's the NHL, so I can't imagine that outcome for over a season, condensed or otherwise. For everything said, this roster I can't see starting training camp as it is, but I don't anticipate reinforcements for the depth charts. The more pieces go, the worse the team will be. It as it looks now, has the potential to hang around for a wild card playoff spot and about two key players from a legitimate lottery team. And that it was OEL that was asked to waive his trade clause and nothing about moving at least one of the three 32-plus-year-olds removes the idea this team has any core pieces than 
before they start a rebuild. Might say some players saved Armstrong from getting a worse grade and from Arizona being able to ice a better product next year for Arizona fans because of trades not being able to happen. Coach Rick Tockett gets a C-plus grade for last season. The team was competitive in the regular season till the stoppage and did enough to get into the expanded playoffs, then knocked off a Nashville team that fell victim trying to do too much against the well-structured defensive system that the players fully in Arizona bought into. And again, that's credit to the coach. Colorado did show how far away Arizona was from having the depth to be with the cup contenders, but they did show they belonged in the playoffs. Talkett could be the right coach when Armstrong completes his rebuild. The real question is, will he survive as coach during the process of Armstrong doing it? Another insert, and this one is being put in as a tag. How could Arizona not having a pick in the first three rounds still end up having a draft controversy in 2020? Arizona Central had a story come out, and this is the actual headline. Arizona Coyotes, fourth round top pick, was convicted for bullying black dean with disability. The link for that article can be found at amp.azcentral.com. That's amp.azcentral.com. AZCentral.com. Don't know whether to say Z or Z, depending on whether you're listening in Canada. By the way, the story is not an easy read. That popped up Monday in my Twitter feed after the Arizona section was completed. It's something, however, I felt needed including. There were two types of comments to the story in that uh, Twitter feed. Those who felt the player shouldn't have been drafted or eligible to be, and that the Coyotes should renounce their pick. The other comments were saying the drafted player deserved a second chance given the age at which the incidents he was charged with occurred. First, when I did the Central Division Hockey the Podcast Draft recap, I looked at rounds one through three only, as the likelihood of a player making the NHL in the later rounds is very hit and miss. The fourth round pick does represent the first pick for the Coyotes in 2020. First of all, that should tell you something right there. The organization states it was aware of the player's history, as were all the NHL teams, as the player sent a letter to all the NHL teams, his prospective future employers. GM Armstrong, if you're not aware, was recluse from the draft as a condition to taking the head GM job in Arizona from the St. Louis Blues because... Of his other roles with the St. Louis Blues as assistant GM, he was also the head of their scouting department and would have heavily been working on that for the Blues organization before taking the job in Arizona. The Coyotes' second-round pick was gone because of their draft-eligible player testing the league doesn't allow. Next year's first-round pick is also part of that punishment. Given the track record of the scouting department, even without this pick, because someone in the department is part of the testing cheating, and this pick, well, the new GM 
in my opinion, has every right to clean house of its scouting department, and here's why. Its judgment of the rules and characters of the players it's drafting is broken. I think having a new GM is the exact opportunity to clean house in the scouting department. And as the former head of a scouting department, he would know the type of people to bring on in replacement of this scouting department, and it's obviously needed. I refuse to mention the name of the fourth round pick, and you can read that story at your leisure. I've given you all the information on how to find it. I say this as every other Central Division team's fourth round picks weren't talked about in the draft recap. And actually, they probably would be worth talking about more than this draft. The final thought is the team in response commended the player for being upfront of his past transgressions. The person he tormented, even after conviction, nor the family received an apology from the drafted players. If he turns out any good and goes from the reserve list to signing an entry-level contract, which would be any drafted player's next step, it looks awful for the team. Therefore, I ask this to the Arizona Coyotes organization. How did the local media have to bring attention to this player's past and not the team itself when they drafted him? How was the organization not in front of what clearly would be a public relations nightmare by drafting him? To me, that they weren't shows how tone-deaf the scouting department is. And saying the player will do PSAs after the fact when it does become public? Fuck off. This was in poor taste, and the culture of this organization should be deservedly blasted for its decision-making. Clearly, common sense isn't so common, and having to put in this as an insert embarrasses me, sadly, more so than it does the Arizona Coyotes. That's beyond disappointment. Guess we'll use the sound effect twice for the second insert to the insert. Then once we're done, we'll just have it one more time. You get the idea. October 29, 2020, the Coyotes renounced their rights to their fourth pick. Just going to include a quote from the NHL.com story. It was retweeted on Central Division Hockey, the podcast Twitter account, if you want to find the link. Arizona GM Bill Armstrong said, quote, it was a unique situation for me not being able to participate in this year's draft, and we were going through a transition with our scouting department, end quote. I want to put context on this. Here's Armstrong talking about the same scouting department post-day two of the draft. This is posted and still up on the ArizonaNHL.com team site from October 7th. Today, to, to be able to walk out with some players, uh, even though, you know, we're not, we weren't picking, you know, um, high in the draft, uh, we were still able to acquire some, some players. I'm very proud of the staff uh, for putting together um, a good list. Um, and acquiring some good players that have a chance to be NHL players. 
You know, listen, first and foremost, I think uh, Ryan Jankowski, who we hired to come in uh, on short, short notice to run this, did an unbelievable job, got to know the staff quickly, got some input from them, uh, and, and, and was able to put a list together. Um, and, you know, I think what, what was taken away from him is not only did he put a good list together, but, you know, he, he, he formed, you know, good relationships with, with the staff and, uh, and, and brought them all together as one. I'm not including the assessment Armstrong gave his then fourth overall pick. You can go listen to it. Don't even want to describe it. Only mention how at the time it really shows how the organization wasn't addressing the skeleton in the pick's closet and focused on everything else. That was a missed opportunity for the club to make fans and stakeholders aware of it. Actually, the second missed opportunity. The first, simply not making the player selection at all. I think the renouncement announcement should have included, in fact, who of someone was relieved of their duties in the scouting department. It doesn't seem to me, looking back and listening to the clip, that GM Armstrong was disappointed by the draft decision, nor the draft department's job. And remember, they first defended the pick, then finally renounced it. The scouting department, key on the word transition, to me means nothing. It's just fluffery. After a string of terrible team decisions that I've yet to see any concrete organizational department moves to address in a real way. Actually, made me wish this team was staying in the Pacific Division permanently, to be honest, not just for one more season. So, final thoughts on this. The Arizona Coyotes deserve all the bad press that their now-renounced pick created. They didn't do due diligence on the pick, nor responded to it, until it was pointed out how in poor taste selecting him was, which was obvious at the start. I don't give them any credit for doing the right thing well after the fact, nor do I have any belief the organization has made changes and firings to the scouting department to address this in a meaningful way going forward. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com holiday. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. 
Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches, urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Chicago did win their play-in series like Arizona. The Hawks against Edmonton, likewise, aided with the help of great goaltending that Edmonton lacked for all their Hart Trophy winners didn't have. Now, the current feel I get from the Central Division team markets is that GM Stan Bowman is probably sitting as the least liked GM among the team's respective fan bases. After some of the interesting choices he made moving forward, he became proactive in providing never-before-seen transparency by doing media calls with the Chicago market to help explain the decision-making process. It explained it, but as media or fans, we don't have to necessarily like the explanation, and for media analysis, if we don't, we do have to back it up on why we disagree. First, if not for veteran three-time cup winner and usually reserve captain Jonathan Taves reaching out to the media after the sod trade and letting goaltender Corey Crawford walk is noteworthy. It's rare of Taves to do that. So the transparency of the media gauntlet undertook by GM Stan Bowman looks part reactionary to that happening as opposed to simply being more open as an organization with the team's moves. The rebuild letter to the fans needed to predate the Taves interview to really have not come across as being reactionary. That aside, the forthcoming nature of what GM Stan Bowman did provide and the assurance the openness will from a team management perspective continue was otherwise absolutely refreshing. 
it would be nice to see more teams doing this than the everything is behind closed doors approach and having to guess at the decisions teams make. Just prior to the opening of free agency, we saw a glimpse of the new direction as GM Stan Bowman did talk about not re-signing two-time Stanley Cup winning goalie Corey Crawford and that the team was going in a different direction. This did come prior to the sod trade, and the team was out in front of this decision. Here's some of GM Stan Bowman on the decision to move on from Corey Crawford. I had a conversation with Corey earlier today, and uh, it was a bit of an emotional talk. Um, you know, Corey and I go back a long time. Uh, it brought me back to some memories of... Uh, when we first started with Corey and I remember it was uh, early when I was starting as a general manager, we had a decision to make uh, over in Europe who we were going to keep, whether it was Corey Crawford or Antti Niemi. And uh, they were both young goaltenders and um, they both played well. We had a tough decision and it was more of a business decision back then. And Corey didn't need waivers. So we, I had to talk with Corey then, and that was a tough conversation. Uh, to let him know that he had played well, but we were sending him down to Rockford. And uh, to his credit, Corey uh, handled it the right way, went down, had a really good season. And that next year he came up and he was, he's been our goaltender ever since. And we had some incredible moments together. Uh, you know, looking back at this last stretch of time um, to be a, a two-time Stanley Cup champion, the only goaltender in the history of the Blackhawks to do that. I think it speaks volumes to his ability. Uh, he's up there with the legends for, for the Blackhawks, Tony Esposito, Glenn Hall, Corey Crawford, and uh, you know, Corey stands tall as a two-time cup champion. Um, you know, looking back at his career trajectory, I think he never got the proper uh, recognition early on. We had such star-studded teams. And, you know, Corey was fantastic back in 2013 when we, when we beat the Bruins. And uh, I think his importance to our team grew and grew going to the 2015 team. I look back at his performance, that cup run, and I think, uh, you know, he was outstanding for us. And uh, we never would have won it without Corey. So I think at that time, people started to recognize really how um, – important he was and how great a goaltender he was he made it was overshadowed somewhat by some of the other players here but uh, uh i had a good chat with Corey this morning and um you know the the message to Corey and to everyone else today is that you know we've decided that we've got some young goaltenders here in chicago that we believe in much like Corey, um you know needed that opportunity when he came up after the 2010 season um, you know, he had been with us for a few years working his way up. We've got a couple of young goalies here in Lankin and Delia who we haven't given a, a real big opportunity to, but, you know, with where we're headed and, you know, the NHL is relying more and more on young players and, uh, you know, we're going to embrace that moving forward. I think we saw uh, some really bright spots, especially in the playoffs. You saw the way that Kirby took that next step and we think he's just, starting out just scratching the surface and um you know we can we continue to give bigger opportunities to younger players moving forward and that, that's something that's important to us 
and we spent a lot of time um, you know deciding on that and we think that's the right move for us so uh, certainly wish Corey the best have a lot of great memories and uh, we, we thank him for an incredible career with the Blackhawks clearly I'm going to miss Crawford playing in the Central Division Chicago moving on from Crawford irks me big time. I don't think you can get through a Central Division Hockey, the podcast, without an understanding that I view goaltending as a foundation to championship teams. Corey Crawford has proven twice capable of doing that. He also, based on his play this past season, both in the regular season and postseason, is still very much relevant. GM Stan Bowman, in saying goodbye, is even aware of both his contribution and also that Crawford is still elite. So, what gives? Now, at the time of that presser, only the AHL goalies with the team were Colin Delia, 26, and Kevin Lankinen, 25, signed. So, let's look at some minor league stats. AHL stats for them from last year from Rockford. Delia? A 2.66 goals against average, a .912 save percentage, 32 games played, 16, 13, and 1. Three shutouts, 81 goals against. Lankinen, 3.03 goals against average, a .909 save percentage, 21 games played, 8, 10, and 2, no shutouts, 60 goals against. Delia played 16 games in the NHL, 14 games started last year. 6-4-3, a 3.61 goals against average, and a .908 save percentage while allowing 50 goals against. He has 18 games played career total at the NHL level. And those NHL stats, while the AHL stats are respectable, the NHL ones are below the league average for sure. No NHL stats for Lankinen, nor do I think his AHL stats deserve consideration for an NHL promotion. The team did circle back, both allowing backup goalie Malcolm Subban to go to free agency, then re-signing him. Here is Subban's backup NHL stats from last year, a 3.17 goals against average, a .890 save percentage, 9-7-3 in 21 games played, zero shutouts, 60 goals against. Two things. Those stats seem below the league average in net, and most of those games played were in front of Vegas, not Chicago. In fact, a minute and 10 seconds is the total minutes played in Chicago. Subban is two years removed from his NHL career highs. They were a 2.68 goals against average and a .910 save percentage. 22 games played, also a single-season career high that year, and he had a 13-4-2 mark with 55 goals against. He has 66 games played at the NHL level, all as a backup. Now, I've been on record that I would like to see more GMs spend more cap on the goalie position, that the NHL is a two-goalie league unless you have one of the three perennial Vesna Trophy candidates. You still need two quality guys to win in the National Hockey League. I had averaged most teams to come in around just under $9 million per on a pair of goalies. I was excited to see Montreal and Vegas spend more on their goaltending for the upcoming season. And I think it will directly correlate to more wins. 
Want to ask me how I think about Chicago spending under $2 million for both their starter and backup next year? And that's the total, whichever two of the three play. In fact, Chicago could carry all three goalies next season and still buy $3 million plus be the lowest goaltending cost in the division. It's probably the whole league, but for sure, it's the lowest payroll for the goalie position in the division by that total. That's embarrassing and, to me, unacceptable from a competitive standpoint. There isn't a rule against it, but it occurred to me there should be like a cap team floor, a positional cap team floor. Now, one of these prospects may rise up to the opportunity, and that would be quite a story for the guy who does. Reality is, I would call this a surefire way to tank and be a lottery team. And quite honestly, liking a lot of the rest of this team notwithstanding, I don't expect much from Chicago next season. You can't spend less than $2 million on goaltending and win. And if you do, it's a second coming in the second city, miracle on ice. Quite honestly, the Hawks don't deserve this outcome if you reap what you invest into your team at such an important position. Crawford was offered a one-year deal. And think even the money was half his last contract. He deserved better, both by his play and his pedigree from GM Bowman. Now, in what two local podcasts Bowman went on, not sure which one of them it was, the Athletics, Laz and Powers, or Blackhawks talk from NBC Sports Chicago, but if I reference Bowman's response, it's from one of those interviews, it is also in that goodbye to Crawford clip I included. He talks at length about giving the young guys the opportunity to snag the starting job. Firstly, since when was the NHL a development league? That's the American Hockey League. Is there any indication from the stats of your backup? Subin's NHL stats are regressing, not improving as the years have gone. Delia's AHL number is respectable, but his NHL below the league average. And Lincoln's AHL stats aren't at a level to be promoted. Dallas's Jake Oninger and Minnesota's Apple Kakinen are the top two AHL goalies on Central Division teams, close to a deserved shot at the NHL level, on teams that invested on having two more experienced NHL goalies in front of them on the depth chart for the upcoming season, making the challenge for those two to have to beat out a pair of NHL-proven goalies to get a start at the NHL level. That's how the goal position works on NHL teams. Now, let's read between the lines. At some point, discussing Crawford not being locked up for more than a year was to improve the Hawks' cap flexibility. Now, that made sense, Stan Bowman, if you don't look into it further. There was talk of, say, for example, next offseason, the Hawks could look into the free agent goalie market. Sounds about right when you don't have a starting NHL goalie. As if Bowman, although he can't tamper with an impending free agent, has someone in mind. We should play a game within the Hawks section of I said and Bowman did from the free agency preview podcast and recap. I said the one priority for Stan Bowman was finding a way to re-sign goalie Corey Crawford. Bowman did the opposite and his most experienced goaltender in the depth chart has 66 career games at the NHL level, no more than 22 in one given season. 
Now, the second part, as the roster in place is, can someone tell me, please, where the additional cap flexibility of this roster is coming off the books next season? There is not one substantial contract at will. It's all two years out minimal. The offseason before the last year of Taves and Kane's current deals. As we go through the rest of the team positionally, I'm going to point out Bowman's answer was based on a false narrative. Unless more veterans are moved. There isn't money to go get a new free agent goalie in the next offseason after this one. And we will look at the rest of the roster to reinforce that point. Nor in fairness to the three goalies Chicago does have, a three-year NHL backup and two prospects, any reference point for a team deciding to go this direction while rebuilding? Well, there isn't one. Bowman's only offering Crawford a year to have the ability to go and test the goalie free agent market next year doesn't add up. And it does give the impression that you are actively trying not to win this season. Less than $2 million on cap for both goalies, the starter and the backup, is when their numbers from the season before, not exceptional but average at best, is basically leaving a key positional piece. So for any team, it would leave them up to a lot of chance. It's more a sure way to bottom out if there was a template for actively doing it. The sod trade was supposed to facilitate the Hawks having cap flexibility to get a proven NHL goaltender for next season with the cap space they had. Preferably a two-time cup winner named Corey Crawford. And it was consciously not done. That without the sod trade would have me as a captain pissed. And following through to look at the defense, we inevitably still have to talk about the return for the Brandon Sod before we get to the forwards. So an, an advance apology that this will positionally have a bit of back and forth from defense to forward and back, and his move permeates all the positions. Those who listen to the Chicago Free Agency Preview podcast would know we talked about the sod trade before it happened as a logical chance. The trade happened, but not for the reasons I said it should be done for. Getting a bit ahead of ourselves, let's focus on the defense. I said I would try and move Calvin DeHaan and or Connor Murphy. One higher salary than Olimata, the other, both Matas and Murphys, were close. And next to cornerstone defenseman Duncan Keith, who should be untouchable, with or without a no-trade clause. Mata was the best defenseman in the playoffs for the team, from an offensive standpoint especially. What Bowman did? Trade Mata, and DeHaan and Murphy are still with the team. The younger Mata was near to the least costly of the three for a team trying to cut salary for quote-unquote cap flexibility. I'm going to miss Mata playing in the Central Division. Both the Han especially and Murphy Limited missed good chunks of last season because of injury. Now, the Han led the Hawks in plus-minus in the regular season in the 29 games played that he did play. However, given the health on the defense of Brent Seabrook already, I think healthy bodies would be my priority. 
I can't dispute the contribution of the Han when healthy, although he is so slow on the ice for the type of transition game that Chicago plays that makes them good. And if getting younger but not touching future Hall of Famer Duncan Keith, your cornerstone, wouldn't the 26-year-old Mata make more sense to keep than your 29-year-old DeHaan or 27-year-old Murphy? This getting younger with the Mata trade to LA and retaining 750k in salary to do it, that's saying one thing and doing another to me. Also, Slater Cuckoo, 26, was great in the return to play playoffs. If I'm a GM in the NHL right now, I'm finding $1 million per on a two-year deal for him, over 16 minutes, average on ice time, size, and offensive contribution that he showed in this postseason. I'm potentially going to miss Cuckoo playing in the Central Division next season. I said Chicago should resign Cuckoo at 26 at a low cost to play top four and trade both Murphy and DeHaan. Bowman did not qualify or resign Cuckoo, then traded the defenseman I felt was the last choice of the three the team should move. 37-year-old cornerstone left-hand defenseman Duncan Keith remains, as does DeHaan and Murphy, and in the saw trade with Colorado, Chicago gets left-handed defenseman Nikita Zadorov, 25, 6'6", and his unique skill set. I bring him up now, as I suspect he would be in the team's top four, especially without Cuckoo. Even a healthy return of Brent Seabrook, 35, it seems he would be best suited on a bottom pairing when he returned to health. So after Keith, Murphy, DeHaan, and Zadaroff on Chicago's defensive depth chart. Now, Bowman feels Zadaroff is going to play with one of his two smaller right-hand defense prospects, 20-year-old Adam Bolquist or 21-year-old Ian Mitchell, and maybe that is as a 5-6 pair, although something makes me feel it's the 3-4 pair. Actually, what you do with the Han is Keith and Murray as a top pair. The Han plays top four minutes now, so I would think he is paired with either Boquist or Mitchell as well. Seabrook or DeHaan, then both Mitchell and or Boquist to play regularly can't be in the lineup at the same time. One of those guys has to be a healthy scratch. Is it worth guessing if the plan is to play Zadaroff top four, how both Bolquist and Mitchell get minutes with all the aging bets? The Hawks still have waiver wire pickup Nick Sealer 27. I suppose they put him on waivers after training camp. How many seventh D-men can the team have? And they're going to need injuries to see defenseman Nicholas Bodine, Lucas Carlson, as well as Anton Lindholm, 25, who came over in the sod deal for the two years younger 23-year-old Dennis Gilbert. The latter is a minor leaguer I see with more upside and chance of being a bottom pair NHLer in the future. Ah, yes, the youth movement of Stan Bowman. Again, I think Cuckoo wouldn't have cost the $3.2 million per Zadaroff will this upcoming season. So is he really playing five, six bottom pair minutes? At the end of the day, it's clear that I would have kept the two departed guys, Mata and Cuckoo, not a knock on Zadorov, but I've got him slotted behind Keith DeHaan on the left-hand side. 
Zadaroff is a 5-6 guy, who I expect to play top four just based on the gush on Bowman has for him. And then that has the five million per to Dahan, what I was trading at five million per, playing bottom pair. Now you can pair both the younger right hand defensemen with Dahan and Zadaroff, and Seabrook never dresses. It's still a good defense, and well, given the amount spent on the goaltending, it better well be. Semantics aside, I would have Keith Boquist, Kukumata on his offside. If you still make the Zadaroff trade, then he would play bottom pair with Mitchell. We won't see my defense, but there's still 8.3 million I would have shed in salary while retaining 4 million that the team is paying 750k of anyways. It's not close to the worst defense in the division. If we say Keith Murphy on the top pair, Dahan Boquist to round out the top four, and Zadaroff Mitchell as a bottom pair with Seabrook the healthy scratch. That's actually logical. I'm just not sure given the options available, Chicago made the best of its options. And the team has no proven NHL starting goalie next season. Chicago went away from a pair of defensemen that were healthy and effective to keep older but more injured pair at a higher cost than moving them. Keeping with the team competitiveness theme, are they better now? From a cap flexibility perspective, it did nothing for that either. And the new traded for piece, Zadaroth, is the only D-man that's contract expires at the end of this season. Remember the cap flexibility? I still want to see DeHaan or Murphy gone unless Seabrook is on long-term injury reserve. This seems like a missed opportunity to shed salary. Zadaroth's deal with the retained modest salary makes zero impact on cap flexibility. It actually makes it a wash. In is Nikita Zadaroth and out is both Ole Mata and Slater Cuckoo. How do you sell the defenses better now? And for all the focus on how injured Brent Seabrook has lost a step, how about acknowledging DeHaan has too? What purpose is he in the rebuild would keep and Seabrook on the team already? I could add Murphy to that evaluation as well. If you're confused, I am too, but I'm building towards a greater point with all of this still. The inevitable sod trade return. In the preview podcast, I had suggested a trade of Brandon Sod to Montreal to get a cost-effective forward at half the cost of Sod's salary, preferably a center or a top six forward, not a defenseman. I was thinking the space Chicago had would be used to retain Crawford, move a defenseman or two, re-sign Cuckoo, and have money to re-sign restricted free agent forwards, Dominique Kubelik, 25, who was a 30-goal scorer this season, and a Calder Trophy nominee, as well as center Dylan Strom, 23. Now, the top six, and again, not a knock on D-man Nikita Zadorov, but there is a hole up front in the top six. Now, the good news, Dominique Kubelik is resigned to a $3.7 million per two-year bridge deal. Great work as I wasn't sure he was returning for under $4 million per, given what 30-goal scorers can command in the pre-pandemic NHL. Imagine, although Taves and Kane usually play on different lines and are paired up time to time to create 
a power line in close games when the Hawks are down often. We have a top line of left winger Kubalik, center Taves 32, and on right wing Kane 33. Two of those guys, three-time cup winners, and first ballot Hall of Famers. All still are amazing players. Kane will undoubtedly finish his career as the highest scoring U.S. born player to ever play. He had another 30 plus goal this past season. Now, with the departure of Saad, I had slotted 19 year old Kirby Dock to play in the top six on right wing. Essentially, he would play with Kubalik and Taves. It also factors in Dock's face off win percentage is the lowest of the Hawks forwards who can play center. Of course, left wing, the top line could have Alex Debrinkit, 22, instead of Kubalik. They're both playing top six. I like Debrinkit on the wing on a line with Kane, and the unsigned Dylan Strom, 23, is at center. The idea of getting a top six player was to have Strom as third line center, not second line center, or an option to be able to do that. Now, there are still options to have Strom once re-signed, not second-line center. However, I would categorize the remaining centers as solid bottom six players. 29-year-old right shot Ryan Carpenter, to me, is a logical third-line center. However, GM Bowman did sign Dallas Stars free agent left shot center Matthias Janmark to a one-year $2.25 million deal. I see him playing left wing on the third line, not center, but it's another option. That leaves fourth line center duties to either a pair of 25-year-olds, David Kopp, or unrestricted free agent signing from Florida, Marcus Walmart, both left shot centers. Additionally, left shot center 24, Matthew Highmore, who could slot on the fourth line, although one of Kopp or Walmart at center with the other at wing, seems a good option as well. Then Highmore could play right wing on the off wing or be a healthy scratch. In a minor league deal, left winger Brandon Peary, 29, was picked up from Vegas for the younger Dylan Sakura. think it gives another depth forward option, although reminded of the hypocrisy of this youth movement narrative of that minor league deal that I guess we shouldn't question. I also don't know what is happening with left wing Zach Smith other than it would be a nice contract to move on from. Long-term injury reserve center right winger Andrew Shaw would be great to have return, as the team is rather limited on the right wing side, especially without Shaw, and he would be my choice for third line right wing to play with, for example, Jan Mark and Carpenter. It would also put Alex Nylander, 22, on the fourth line, as unrestricted free agent Drake Gajula, 26, was not re-signed. He still hasn't signed with another team, but until he has a new contract, we should not expect him to be with Chicago next year, although I like the forward group better if he were. I'm going to miss him playing in the Central Division. As for the right shot Nylander, a lot of depth charts have him playing left wing, not right wing. In fact, with this roster, it seemed all the wingers play on the off wing, but to me, it still worked out to put the right shot guys on right wing and the left shot guys on left wing, and if they both play the off wings, well, it's still the same line, so it works out either way to me. Annoying, yes, but manageable to understand. Keep in mind, the exception to that is left shot Patrick Kane, 
And he is the first example listed as a right wing playing the off wing. Just how many other guys do it was surprising. In Kane's case, or for example, national winger Philip Forsberg, he does as well. I don't mind off wing forwards when it's elite forwards. I don't quite like a bottom six guy doing it regularly. Kane can do it, whereas I'd prefer if Nylander didn't. Score 30 plus goals in a season regularly, and you can play whatever wing you damn well please, is my general rule. 22-year-old Mackenzie Entwistle could be an option on right wing. His Rockford point totals don't impress me that he is ready to be an everyday NHL or yet. Still, he does have promise as a prospect. The same could be said for center John Quinville and left winger Brandon Hagel. Both, I think, more development in Rockford. And 24-year-old center Pius Suter was a point-per-game player in the Swiss National League. So interested to see how that translates to the North American game. Basically, there isn't a top six replacement for Saad. Yes, you can slot Doc in the top six. The team has one top six center, Jonathan Taves, and probably three third-line centers, one of which will need to play top six. Honestly, that means playing with Patrick Kane. So whether the still unsigned Strom, newly signed Yanmore, or even Carpenter, heck, even a healthy Andrew Shaw could be a possibility. The forward group, even with the departure of bottom six player Kajula, is comparatively as good as the team has five surefire top six forwards, thus only one guy has to earn the right to join them. As we give the GM grade for Stan Bowman, the inevitability of the sod trade, I get that. The head-scratcher was the return of a defenseman, not a more cost-effective top six forward. That's what I don't get. The return was a 5-6 bottom-pairing D-man. Arguably, Colorado's least-used regular D-man for a proven top six cup-winning forward. Not resigning Cuckoo for less than the 3.2 Zadaroff will be paid. And then adding Yanmark at $2.25 million in free agency makes the cap flexibility zero. Colorado had Bowman keep $1 million of Saad's salary in the trade. So $5 million, not $6 million, is off the books. In fact, I'm not a mathlete, but those two contracts total more than $5 million, Yanmark and Zadaroff, so that provided zero cap flexibility, although it is two NHL players for the cost of one. The top six isn't as strong, but only one guy in addition to Doc has to step up and fill a role among a few player options. The defense is good, although gone Armada and Cuckoo and in is Zadarov. So is it better? Probably not. And if you were to compare Saad and Yanmark, if that were a one-for-one trade, someone with a PlayStation let me know if NHL 20 would let you make that trade. Pretty sure Saad would be the 27-year-old of more value. Strom still needs to be resigned, and not sure how much that eats into the 5.2 million projected cap space left. Of course, to wrap up talking about the Hawks, that was the money for Corey Crawford or a proven NHL starting goaltender. It wasn't cap flexibility. Thus, GM Bowman gets a D grade. The sod trade keeping salary for a 5-6 bottom pair D-man, was not maximizing the obvious trade chip 
available, moving Mata and not resigning Cuckoo, while keeping the older Dahan and Murphy while telling people you are rebuilding doesn't add up. Finally, Chicago does not have a proven starting NHL goalie next season. Only the recent signings come off the books a season from now. There is no flexibility without further shedding to go test the free agent market a year from now. So GM Stan Bowman can't say that's the plan. That's two to three years out, not next offseason. Spending under $2 million for your goalie tandem should get you a spot at the lottery draft table. Too bad when positionally this team's balance of youth and veterans was actually good at forward and defense. There was a real opportunity to get as high as a B grade this offseason and at least try to stay in the wildcard playoff mix. Taves, Kane, and Keith deserve that. A C grade would have required an NHL goalie. Even with the moves, he saved it from an F, but a Kubalik holdout would have secured it. That's how close it was. Rating coach Jeremy Culleton, the return to play-in win over Edmonton on the backs of Corey Crawford, and the development of Kubalik, Doc, Strom, and others was great with the help of the leadership group. That is one of the best a team could hope to have. So I grade Culleton a B for this past year. The loss to injuries on the defense and playing young players like Boquist and Nylanders, plus the others mentioned, and remaining competitive was impressive. Unfortunately, the recent story that you said that the leadership group had to continue to be working for the rebuild process dampens my appreciation. One, what the hell did Taves, Kane, Keith, Sod, and Crawford do all last year? play quality minutes, and work with the young players to get the team into the expanded playoffs, knock off Edmonton, and lose close games to a team a lot of people picked to win the whole thing. So why is there a need to go on record on re-upping the one's remaining commitment when it has never not been the case? The brilliance of calling out players who don't need to be called out. Brilliant, coach. Finally for Colton, good luck with the goaltending. That will hurt you the most next season, not your leadership group, because none of them can play net for you. For Bowman, the whole Culleton call-out confirmed the only theory I have to explain all of this. Duncan Keith, Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, and Brent Seabrook all want to stay in Chicago for their careers, and that would be the best-case scenario. But I was reminded of a Chicago GM who fired a well-liked coach to have the best player of his sport retire to prove that GM's own importance. That was basketball, but it was Chicago. It was the Chicago Bulls, not the Blackhawks. But you know what watching the last dance made me think? What if the GM wanted to put Keith, Seabrook, Taves, and Kane into an environment where they decided they wanted to leave? Have the coach call them out unnecessarily? trade a proven goalie that was their friend, and then not replace them at all, and tell them you're playing the young guys in the NHL, not in Rockford, till they earn it. Would that create the atmosphere for the remaining championship pillars to ask to get traded out? I'm starting to think 
that is the end game of this offseason's rebuild beginnings. If I were Chicago's GM, I'd rather be fired than be the guy that traded away three more first ballot Hall of Famers after providing them with unsatisfactory work conditions that absolutely facilitate it. care if it's a cliche to talk about country music while beginning the Nashville Predators part of the podcast. Eric Church has a new single out called Through My Ray-Bans, and you probably wouldn't know this, but I'm a big Eric Church fan. He also had an album a few years back titled The Outsider, and that I understand when thinking about the Nashville Predators. There was a time this outsider had an appreciation for the team built by GM David Poyle, but Through My Ray-Bans, he looks now to be the big problem, as I said in the Nashville preview podcast. 2017-18, Pekka Rene won the Vesna Trophy. I'm surprised he only won it once. In 2010-11, he had a career-high 2.12 goals against average. He had a 2.18 goals against average in 2014-15. The 2.31 goals against average was his third best mark the year he won the Vesna. With the exception of the 2013-14 season, he has played 40 games every year since 2008-2009. He is currently 38 years old, and for the first time last year, he didn't play 40 games. It was also the first time he had a goals against average over three. His 3.17 goals against average was the worst mark in any season with at least 20-plus games played. Until last year, his save percentage has always been over the 900 mark. He was .895 last year. His career .917 save percentage and 2.42 goals against average should remind you how great a career in 659 games played so far he has been. Those numbers reflect the elite-level goaltending that the Predators didn't have last year. I'd like to see Rene in the NHL Hall of Fame. However, I don't have the fake GM Poyle does that Rene's better days aren't behind him. So I'm worried about the goaltending in Nashville. That does not mean I don't appreciate how good Rene through his career has been. I don't expect a rebound season from him. I do think he has been a franchise goalie that has been a big part of any of the Predators' success over the years as any player has been. Juice, Juicy Sorrows 25, took the reins playing more regular season games than Rene last season. It was close to split duty. He had a 2.70 goals against average and a .914 save percentage, and his career numbers are even better, a 2.56 goals against average and a .918 save percentage in 119 NHL games played. The trend on his goals against average is it gets lower the more games he plays. In 2016-17, he had 21 games played, a 2.35 goals against average. In 2017-18, 26 games played, it went to a 2.45 goals against average. 
And in 2018-19, in 31 games played, it was up to a 2.62 goals against average. And last year, in 40 games played, it went up to 2.47 goals against average. He played in the return-to-play series versus Arizona, finishing with a 3.22 goals against average and a .895 save percentage, the lowest numbers that we've listed here. And it wasn't good enough for the Predators to advance. Point is, simply the more workload, the less effective his numbers get. The Predators are going to have to manage a split-duty goalie system next season, and Nashville fans should be happy the Predators have drafted their next franchise goalie. However, it is at least two years before Yaroslav Askarov can come to North America. In the meantime, Juice won't be the starter the way Rene was in his prime, and only Chicago in the Central Division has goaltending I'm less confident about. Both Saros and Rene are playing the last year of their deals. Not only is Askarov exciting, 23-year-old Connor Ingram's AHL numbers in Milwaukee were exceptional. A 1.92 goals against average, a .933 save percentage in 33 games played. 25-5-5 was his record with two shutouts and 61 goals against. Additionally, Nashville moved on from Troy Grosnick, and he was, of course, in the American Hockey League as well, at 31. However, they did sign Azimir Kaskosiu, 27, primarily who played in the American Hockey League with the Toronto Marlies last year, and also signed undrafted college goalie, 23-year-old Devin Cooley, for depth. As much as I'm interested to see Ingram get an opportunity at the NHL level, I don't think we will, but he is there, and I'd put money given the chance that I like the Preds' competitiveness till Askaros arrives with Ingram more than Saros. GM Poyle is selling us the 2017-18 National Goal tandem, but I'm not expecting that tandem in 2020-21. And that alone puts Nashville automatically into the bubble playoff teams, not the top contenders. A team that did get knocked out of the play-in playoffs because the other team's goalie outplayed theirs. That's the present-day reality for Smashville. While we are going over Nashville Predators NHL award winners, let's add the most recent one and talk about the 2019-20 Norris Trophy winner, left-hand defenseman Roman Yossi. The 30-year-old led the Predators in points in the regular season and was third on the team in points in the postseason, had career-high goals and assists totals in the regular season, a season cut short because of the pandemic. GM Poyle was talking about how Poyle personally had to be better, how coach John Hines had to be better, and how the big-time players had to be better. In Roman Yossi's case, then, please follow up your career season with an even better one. No pressure. Intended sarcasm included. I'm not seriously calling out Yossi. I just am saying, how much better can this guy be? Quite honestly, I point out that maybe some guys on this team actually could just be as good as last season and be voted the best player at their position. That doesn't guarantee a play-in or first-round playoff win. Then you got to ask yourself, how do you build around Yossi? That's not on Yossi. That's on the GM, the guy who gave away P.K. Subban, 
after he gave him a raise guaranteeing him that Nashville couldn't afford to keep him, along with Ryan Ellis, 29, and the team-friendly contract of Matthias Ekholm, 30. As a group of three, I would put those guys up against any three other defensemen in the division. Ellis is underappreciated on his ability to make the power play better, had a great point per game during the regular season, and I see Nashville's struggles as related to his 20-game missed the injury last year. Ekholm is a bargain for the steady, solid play he provides. Often feel he is quietly, most nights, Nashville's best defenseman on the ice. The drop-off, however, after the three is steep. Dante Fabro, 22, hasn't grown into a fully reliable top four guy yet. He may, but sheltering him would be good, except Nashville couldn't last year, as 30-year-old unrestricted free agents Yannick Weber and Corbinian Holzer, nor Jared Tenorti, 28, who remains with the team, were more than bottom-pairing 5-6 guys. Add the retirement of Dan Hamhuse, who was, at least in his prime, a guy who could play a top-four role. However, that was not the case more recently. We didn't see Holzer much when he came over from Anaheim at the deadline. However, it was Weber mostly in the 5-6 role in the return to play. And at his low salary, I'm not sure why for depth he isn't returning. I'm going to miss him playing in the Central Division. There should be at least 750 k for this guy to stay, especially with the retirement of Ham Hughes. Let's talk about the Nashville additions. 31-year-old left-handed defenseman Mark Borowiecki, an unrestricted free agent, playing an average just under 18 minutes with Ottawa last year. Not quite top four, but a solid bottom-pairing minute guy. He, potentially playing his off-wing, would shelter Fabro. That's the current available option going forward. Not ideal, but that's the option. Also, I took the time to splice GM Poyle describing the size, attributes, and physical play of the Holzer deadline deal edition and the recent signing of Borowiecki because I sense a bit of deja vu on the type of player added now twice over. Here's a clip of GM Poyle describing when he grabbed Holzer at the deadline last year. As you can see, uh, we made the one small uh, trade. I really felt our, our bottom uh, end defense uh, needed to have a little bit of a change, and uh, I think uh, with Holzer it just brings a, a different kind of an element. He's a bigger body uh, player that plays pretty gritty, pretty physical, uh, can play on our penalty killing, which certainly can uh, use some, some help. Now here is Poyle describing Boricki after signing him in free agency. And then also to uh, improve our third pair defensive pair. And I think uh, by the signings uh, that we've made that we've accomplished uh, those goals. Uh, first of all, we added Mark Borowiecki, uh, who has an element uh, on the back end. Uh, I think that's something we've been lacking the past couple of seasons. He has a level of grit and physicality that we need to get back to playing, uh, you know, uh, you know, to a, to, a, to a new standard, if you will, in, in that type of area of the game of, of uh, physicality and, and grit. In, in addition, it's pretty obvious in watching him play and then having some conversations with him this past week that he's going to bring a lot of veteran leadership to our, to our hockey club. 
Basically, Burwicky is an addition because Holzer didn't work out to provide the same type of style of game. I just want to point out this is the second attempt to essentially fix the same problem the GM has identified. Holzer seen as another failed trade. 32-year-old left-hand defenseman Matt Irwin signed as a free agent with Buffalo for 700 k for one year. Holzer wasn't re-signed and remains an unrestricted free agent. I mention this as Irwin was who Nashville traded away for Holzer. Positionally, Holzer a right-handed D, while left-handed D Borowicki would have to play his off-D-wing to play top four minutes, and that's not ideal. You can add right-hand defenseman 26-year-old Matthew Benning, an unrestricted free agent who played bottom pair on the Edmonton Oilers last year. Both the defensemen signed for two-year deals. You know who hasn't had a good D group over the last few years? Edmonton. The average ice time for Benning last year was 13 minutes, 14 seconds in the regular season, and just over 10 minutes in the return-to-play playoffs. He was in 43 games played in the regular season, and not sure that was due to injury or just from being a healthy scratch. What is a head-scratcher is a two-year signing. This guy couldn't hold a spot on a bad defensive group, nor had 14 minutes of ice time as a bottom-pair guy. And this is an improvement? No, GM Poyle, this isn't an improvement. Heck, Holzer, mostly in Anaheim, at least was 16 minutes average time on ice, and he has size that he uses. It's to say Benning won't shelter Fabro as a right-handed defenseman option. The depth is less than it was a year ago for the Predators. Three guys out and two guys in, and the drop-off still remains. The tripod is in place with Yossi Ellis and Ekholm, who are all elite level, and other than Ellis being healthy this upcoming season, you can't really ask more of them than they did last year. And they don't have reinforcements, no matter what the GM says. Betting on Fabro to grow and be a full-on top four guy, I'm not ready to do that. So if I were Coach Hines, I would probably go with Yossi Ellis as a top pair, Ekholm Borowiecki on his off wing as a second pair, with the bottom pairing being Tenorti and Fabro, and Benning being my healthy scratch. And that explains why I wouldn't have signed him as an unrestricted free agent. However, it's more likely Nashville will have Yossi Ellis as a top pair, Ekholm Fabro as a second pair, with Borowiecki and Benning as a bottom pair, and Tenorti the healthy scratch. And as good as the top three are, it's not overall better. It's as if the gain of signing Borowiecki was cancelled with the Benning signing. The more I think about it, Holzer looks better with Borowiecki on the bottom pair, or Tenorti would look better more than Benning. The quickness of Nashville making the change and having Benning be the healthy scratch will help them win games. The thing is, I expect it to take them a bit of time to realize they're going to need to do this.
okay, everything in the national media was about the lack of offense from the forward group last year. How good did Kyle Turris look when he first arrived in Nashville? How many contract extensions does GM Poyle give that haven't worked out lately? And the media drove the awful buyout narrative. I was against this buyout in the Nashville preview podcast. What if the problem is Matt Duchesne? Will that be the last straw for Poyle? Probably not. So maybe grab a beer or two for the list of departed forwards I'm going to miss in the Nashville, starting with, yes, Kyle Turris. If you're going to miss Michael Granlin, have a drink. But quite honestly, he was the worst predator, afforded so much ice time in the return to play to produce nothing. Well, I kind of hope he isn't signed with another NHL team next year. However, Hoyle trading Kevin Fiala for him is just one of those so many bad trades, I don't understand how he still has his job. I'd take Fiala and Turris in my top six over DeShane and Granlund every day of the week for the start of the 2021 season. Now, the top line, the Jopa line, was great in the return to play when reunited and keeping them together next season. It will be impossible as the rest of the roster at forward is well in shambles now. There is no way as a coach you will be able to keep them together. Even GM Poyle realizes this. We need a lot of guys that regardless of where they start or play, they need to be moving up and up and down the lineup based on need, based on opponent, based on schedule. And I'm talking about almost everybody. You know, Nick Cousins could go up there. It could be Yarncroft that's done that before. It could be cold decisions. It could be a younger player like Trennan because we want more size and uh, physicality uh, on our on our on our top two lines. So I think we've got a lot of different type of guys that can do different things based on our our, our needs. So and then it then gets back to the what you know experimentation and what if we broke up the, the top line? That's what last year, if you remember, uh, we started off with Forsberg playing with Duchesne, and you know for the first ten games they were lights out, and I think they both had five goals at that point. And who knows if that might uh, be something that we should try again? But we have all the players in place. Now we got to get them on the right, uh, the right seats, or in this case, the right lines. Now it would be ideal if the Jofa line stayed together. Of course, what do you do with second line center Matt Duchesne? Who is he playing with? Granlin is gone, but not replaced. The offer for Taylor Hall, if Nashville made one, was even probably over the five million Colorado offered. They're a real contender. It was lower than the $8 million one-year deal and playing with Eichel in Buffalo rather than, say, Duchesne, and that would have appealed to Hall. Thus, he's in Buffalo. In a National Free Agency preview podcast, I actually said I wouldn't be surprised to see third-line center Nick Bonino traded to try and have money to try and sign Hall. Then I said, how dumb moving the only guy after the Jopa line on the forward group to have played good in the return to play playoffs would be. I think the overall premise I was going for was GM Poyle's trades have been awful the last few years, in addition to bad contracts and term, 
but the less he did in this offseason would probably be best for the organization. Though, he trades Benino, 32-year-old, 18 goals regular season in 16-30 ice time, to Minnesota for right-shot center, 22-year-old Luke Cunnan, 15 goals in the regular season, and 15 minutes 30 seconds time on ice. Now, age aside, I think Cunnan has capped out as a third liner. I really wasn't sure before the trade if he could play top six, and definitely not at center. So if he stayed center, it was as a fourth line center after Erickson Eck on the Minnesota Wild. Benino, I would have had as Nashville's third line center, although he did play good enough to see top six minutes in the return to play. I have slotted on my depth chart Cunning as a right winger on the second line with Deshane, which mirrors that he should get that opportunity, as GM Poyle suggested in that clip. It's by default, and maybe I should have Colton Sissons there instead. Sissons 26, 51% face-offs is better than the 44.5% of Cunning, so I kind of want to keep Sissons as a centerman. I should have mentioned the traded for Luke Cunning, a restricted free agent, has yet to be signed. Presume that will get done, but it is actually noteworthy that it is not completed yet. I believe he would command $2.5 million per, and that is a comparable third liner salary. And he is a guy who has not proven he is a top six guy yet. He is a reliable top nine player, and at 22, it's possible he will develop further. In the short term, this deal is better for Minnesota. Long term, it could benefit Nashville with the age difference. Yet, I said that of the P.K. Subban for Shea Weber deal. Weber's still playing in Montreal, and Subban isn't with Nashville, so it isn't automatic. It's a risk to take on Cunning as a project, and the term and cost is yet to be determined. GM Poyle's player valuation is overvalued than mine is for the majority of this roster, except for the tripod, Josie, Ellis, and Ekholm, and forwards Forsberg, Arvidsson, Yarncroft, and the recently signed Richardson, and the goalie tandem of Rene and Soros. I'm not including the entry-level contracts, but the other guys on the team are overpaid to me on some level when we're looking at cap flexibility. Also in Nashville, add 27-year-old unrestricted free agent left wing center Nick Cousins. And although he is a third liner, put him in the top six. Or dream Yakov Trenin, 23, who averaged under 10 minutes ice time. If he plays top six, just expect growing pains. And Ellie Tovlin, 21, was just over a half point per game at the American Hockey League last year, so don't tell me he is playing top six. Either way, the second line is a third line, and breaking up the top line because you have four top six forwards and bottom six guys after that, well, good luck getting production out of Deshane and as well your top line once you break them up. To refresh your depth chart memory, if the Jofa line stayed together, you have Ryan Johansson at center, 
between Philip Forsberg and Victor Arvidsson. That is ideal. However, Matt Duchesne, center between Nick Cousins and Luke Cunnan, and that would be a great third line on a cup contending team. Not sure Cousins or Cunnan can play 16 plus minutes effectively. The rest of the bottom six is third line center Colton Sissons, an unrestricted free agent, 35-year-old center Brad Richardson, who Nashville picked up. That fourth line center pickup was actually the smartest offseason move made by GM Poyle. Trading Bonino, however, a huge mistake that this signing doesn't save. On the right wing, I have Callie Yarncroke, 28, on the third line, and Rocco Grimaldi, 27, on the fourth line on the right wing side. Still think secondary scoring will be an issue, and the second line probably will be hit and miss too, or breaking up the Jofa line. It could actually make Nashville's offense so anemic it doesn't score at all. Because both lines will have a guy playing up the lineup that probably shouldn't be. On left wing, third line, I have Trennan, and then the younger Tovalin on the fourth line. It is absolutely possible just to put Tovalin top six, put Cousins third line, and Trennan on the fourth line. Just know the consistency of a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old between 29-year-old Deshane will be a defensive liability. However, the bottom six would have mostly guys that actually belong playing there. Banking on center 23-year-old Rim Pitlick, also half-point-per-game guy in Milwaukee in the NHL, seems a reach, and there are fourth-line plug guys. Michael McCarron, 25, center right winger. Matthew Olivier, 23, right winger. And Tanner Janot, 23. All of them are AHL and not everyday NHLers by my assessment. Therefore, when you hear GM Poyle talk about 19-year-old center and top pick from last year's drop, Philip Tomasino, well, he has top potential once he develops, and the depth chart isn't really that deep at forward. Gone is Nick Menino via trade, Pal Perez via buyout, who signed with Edmonton, and Unrestricted free agent center right winger, 31-year-old Craig Smith, who signed with Boston. Another huge loss. Going to miss all those guys playing in the Central Division. Well, except thankfully, Benino will still be in the Central Division. He'll just be playing for Minnesota. Simply, the replacements aren't as good as the players departed. And yet, this team is supposed to be better next year. Also, GM Poyle dealt left winger Austin Watson 28, and while Poyle talked about the grit missing from Nashville, well, part of that was Watson being a healthy scratch. That was pointed out to him, and that's what I wanted to hear an answer for. So let's listen to Poyle on Austin Watson being traded. Yeah, it's just uh, not to, that's fair to think that that could be a contradiction, but we just felt uh, in... Uh, uh, our, our own evaluations and uh, why he's been kind of a little bit in and out of the lineup, uh, uh, both uh, under uh, Peter Lavalette and, and John Hines. And I think he was maybe a little bit of you know, stuck in where he was at. I think that by moving him, that obviously we try somebody else. So that's another change. 
and we have younger guys that uh, we think can replace uh, Wadi and you know Janad or Olivier, McCarron, bring those type of elements to his game. And I, I really think kind of I guess my personal situation, it wouldn't have been great to have Wadi not. It wasn't perfect when he was not dressing all the, all the time because he felt he could play or what have you. And that gets old for the player and it gets old for the team. And I think we we feel by allowing him to go to Ottawa where he actually played for the coach, DJ Smith, and they don't have that element. They need that element that this probably gives Wadi the best chance for his career to to, uh, to take off. So it was, you know, it was a tough decision because again, that he, he did represent, as you just said, the, you know, that physical element that we were trying to put more into our lineup, but we think we have that covered with these other guys and hope that that works out good for us. And we certainly hope it works out good for Wadi in Ottawa. With three years at 1.5 million per left on Watson's contract and moving on from him, while then saying you need to add the type of physicality that player brought to the team, that's just brutal. Also, subtract depth chart forward Colin Blackwell, 27, who signed with the New York Rangers. Hoyle added three NHL forwards, all bottom six guys, while moving on or trading out five NHL forwards, two of which I would have been more comfortable playing top six than any of the three added to the Preds roster for next season. The few young prospects hopefully exceed expectations now, and the pressures on the veterans remaining is now heightened, not reinforced at both defense and forward. GM Poyle gets an F grade. The Kyle Turris buyout and right-hand defenseman Steven Santini as well, part of the return in the P.K. Subban salary dump, that was buried in the minors, is a direct result of signing bad contracts. You can add second-line center Matt Shane to that list. Trading away your vet fourth-best forward, arguably the second-best center on the team, Nick Benino, on a project player Minnesota couldn't find a spot for, just reminds me of the bad one-for-one Gradlin or Fiala trade looks now. Funny, I almost gave Poyle an improved grade of a D for not re-signing Granlin. I should mention Granlin remains unsigned because any GM who was watching him play in the return to play doesn't want to add him to their team either. No one should sign him. That said, trading value-priced Austin Watson when you also lose Granlin on left wing means two prospects get thrown to the fire. Add not resigning Craig Smith, and it needs to remain an F. Also, the top six isn't improved, the third line is gone, and character guys like Smith and Watson, guys other Central Division teams hated playing against, are also gone. The bottom pair defense is a wash too, not better. It won't shelter the big three on defense, and we're still waiting for Dante Fabro to pan out like traded a slightly lower pick of the same year, Sam Gerrard has proven he can play top four. The turnover will also require time to come together. Simply, this team isn't better, and never mind GM Stan Bowman, the first GM of a Central Division team that should be replaced, is David Poyle. I could ice a current better NHL team 
be capped compliant using Poyle's traded away Nashville drop picks over the years. Jay Weber, Seth Jones, Ryan Suter, and Sam Gerrard on the defense alone. Kunin still needs a contract to play. For head coach John Hines, part of me feels much like former coach Peter Laviolette took the fall for having an average team put together by the GM. Not really sure any coach could have coached this team up from the playoff bubble team it was. I grade him a C. That's the grade I'd have given Laviolette at the time he was fired. It's to say the needle didn't really move upward with the new coach at all. In fact, the power play improved in the record before the pause simply because top pair D-man Ryan Ellis returned from his 20-game absence from injury. However, even while having his team outplay Arizona, they were eliminated in the play-in series versus the Coyotes. The fact that Granlin played over 18 minutes a game while producing nothing, nor getting demoted and put down the lineup, actually upset me. I can't imagine how a diehard Nashville fan would have felt. So I think he didn't achieve any adjustments to help this team. Hard to say if anyone could get more out of this group. And honestly, it will be more of an uphill challenge this upcoming year, and a new GM likely will bring in a new coach. So Hines, to me, is on borrowed time, as surely someone needs to realize a GM needs to be let go or promoted to a job that doesn't involve player personnel. The C was acknowledging that GM's expectations are above what any coach could achieve with the personnel he provided. I'm going to miss Peter Laviolette coaching in the Central Division 2. Listening to Central Division Hockey, the podcast, and the 2020 free agency recap and analysis. As we wrap up part two quickly, having looked at the Arizona Coyotes, the Chicago Blackhawks, and the Nashville Predators, I want to remind you not to forget that in the final section of this three part podcast, we will have the Central Division team's power rankings for the upcoming season based on the off season moves to this point. So if you are a fan of one of the teams in this part, part two, definitely check out that section as it will cover all teams in the final part. The entitled guitar interlude between sections was performed by Winnipeg musician Warren Smith. He was a co-host of a former hockey podcast that we did together and has also been the lead singer in a number of local Winnipeg bands now. Again, part three will look at the Winnipeg Jets and the Minnesota Wild and have the Central Division team's power rankings based on the offseason moves to this point. Hope you join Central Division Hockey, the podcast, for part three of the 2020 Free Agency Recap. (laughs) 